Father, we come before you with these requests uh, because they're bigger than us. We can't solve any of them, but we know who you are. We know that you can solve them, and they're important to us, Lord. They're, they're on our minds and our hearts, and we experience them daily. And so we, we bring them to you, Lord, and ask that you continue to guide our leadership to uh, make wise decisions on our behalf. Not expedient decisions, but decisions of faith, good decisions. Thank you for having a tender heart for your creation. Thank you for caring about all this. In Jesus' name, amen. One that I did not put up there. Um, most of you don't know how we do ministry planning here at the church. Um, honestly, we don't do ministry planning from the top down. I'm not that smart, okay? I, don't, I, I can talk to the moms. I have no idea what they, their kids need. They know better than I do. So we really do it from the ground up. So we start with an off-site which we did a couple weeks ago, the staff, or a whole day off-site, where we really dig deep and look at what's happening here internally and analyzing what's happening out here as well. And this is changing constantly out here. This is in flux. It's a swirl around this. So we come up with kind of parameters, if you will, of how we're going to operate for the year. And then we go to the various leadership teams and say, you know, the children's advisory board, what do you want for your kids or your kids are not mine? And so they help us plan. And the goal is by August, when we do our congregational meeting, when we hand out a ministry plan and budget, I can say, this is the plan of your, this is your plan. This is a plan of at least 50 people, if not more, that have been involved. And here's the budget. Here's what it's going to cost. So for the staff, that process takes from January through August. Uh, and then in September, we start implementing it. And so um, so we, we put a lot of work in on that. And so I asked Mike Graham, one of our elders, you can see his picture over the water fountain if you don't know who he is, to orchestrate because he, he's one of the guys who just loves to pray. Doesn't matter what I'm talking about, he just loves to pray. And I just think it's so wonderful to have people like that about maybe starting a, we have a lot of little groups praying, but about starting a bigger group just to pray for us during all of this time. So if you would like to, I'm gonna, he's going to start sending out a weekly communication on uh, where we are in the process and all of that. And we'd love all of your feedback, by the way. Okay, we did a we did a um, um, an experiment taking our we do a church health survey every year. We did an experiment where we did it online and offered it to eight, everybody, eight hundred people on our on our list, just to see if it works, and it does work. So we're actually going to be sending that out to our members here probably in another couple of months. You'll get that, and it's your chance to give us feedback on how you think about the church and you know that kind of stuff. So be praying about all that. All right, we have been in a series looking at the minor prophets, <clears throat> and the whole goal is 12 minor prophets is to communicate several things. One is the minor prophets cover a period of about 300 years, okay? And so we talked about the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Assyria, when you get after Lent, we're going to talk about Babylon and what's happening there with all of that, and in Persia, and, and so they all fit within the context of the history of the world, and you can see God's hand shaping world events. And the minor prophets are delivering a lot of that message. And so um, we decided, I decided for Lent, because we just started Lent on Ash Wednesday. For those of you that were there, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was just a 30-minute time of relaxation, a little bit of discussion, singing, 
It was just wonderful to think it through. Lent is a time where we stop and we focus on our own mortality. You see, Jesus came as a human. He was always God, but he wasn't always a human. He came to walk the earth and experience what we experience. All right, we don't know what it's like not to be depraved. We don't know what it's like not to have a sin nature. We don't know what it's like not to live in a fallen world. We're like the fish that live in the water. They don't know what the water's like. Okay? We're like that. And we don't have the ability to get out of it. We can conceptualize it, which is what we try to do here, but we don't know what that's like until glory comes. I don't know what it's going to be like when Christ steps back into our world and we all go, huh, this is nature's gone. This is what it's like. I think that'll be an awesome second when that happens. But for now, we don't know that. So he came to join us to walk and look in people's eyes, to, to experience the sin and the swirl of immorality and destruction all around him, uh, to smell it, you know, and just to see it firsthand so that he could, number one, understand us and be really become our high priest because he can really mediate for us because he's been there and seen it. But even more than that, he could show us the way. What does it look like? So when we talk about being made into the image of Christ, that's really what we're talking about is becoming like Christ. And so what we're going to talk about during the season of Lent, we're going to take a look at sin. And so we're asking the question, what actually is wrong with sin? I get that question all the time. What's wrong with friends with benefits? Okay, what's wrong with, you name it, and uh, you fill in the blank, what's actually wrong with it? And um, the older generation rarely asks those questions. We have very little written prior to 20 or 30 years ago on why. What's actually wrong with these behaviors? Honestly, we had to move into discussions with what we call dialogue partners. We had to talk with our our uh, our fellow scholars who are in psychology, cultural anthropology, sociology, to really get a handle on why the Bible says what it says. And we have a much better understanding today. But the old, my generation and my parents' generation and grandparents, they never even asked the question. So the older generations tend to agonize over sins. The younger generations often appear a little bit ambivalent or indifferent to it because they don't understand why it's important. That's why I get those questions. What's wrong with friends of benefits? You know, the questions I get, I can give you all the list of questions I've gotten over thousands and thousands of coffees and bars and coffee shops and things like that. And so I've learned that the younger generation just doesn't really understand. I posted on social media one time that, uh, that we've done an excellent job of identifying as a Christian church what we think sin is. If you ask 100 people anywhere in the United States, do you think the Christian church believes that adultery is sin? What are they going to say? Yes. Okay. But we haven't done a good job of explaining why it's important and what actually happens. And so I got, I got a response back. I didn't even respond to the guy. Got a response back. Well, that's not. Jesus came to divide families. That's our job. We don't have to explain why. We just have to tell people what they're doing is sin, and then they get to choose. It's like, wow, no wonder our church is in trouble <laughs> with that kind of attitude. So I've enjoyed lots and lots and lots, thousands of discussions around what actually is sin about? What's the nature of it? When we looked at the first five minor prophets, and we paused for Lent, one of the things that comes up routinely is sin. I mean, judgment is about sin. And so it's very important to understand it. 
Then we're going to take Lent and we're going to reflect on ourselves and sin and what does it look like, okay? And what's the answer to it? Why is it destructive? Because it is. And then we're going to get back into the minor prophets and look at the rest of them, the seven that are left, and why God went after the southern kingdom like he did, trying to turn them around. When you read the prophets, you read, oh, there's a lot of of judgment in there. There's no question about it. Those are for the people who are shaking their fists at God and don't care. But there's a lot of also hope in there. God pleading with his people, be faithful, stand firm, come back, turn back. So we're going to stop. So the question then is, uh, stop and look at sin. Why should we speak up? Why recapture an awareness of sin? Or maybe to be a little more technical, why restate the Christian doctrine of sin? Well, because it's important for the younger generation for us to teach them about these doctrines. We have 2,000 years of very good men and women from Athanasius to Martin Luther, people that put their lives on the line to sort out what we believe to be true today, who, who have really torn this thing apart looking at it. And so it's important that we pass it on to generations And so some of you may have never even had a discussion on what sin is. You may have been judged about sin, but that doesn't mean you understand it, okay? And so somehow along the way, in all the thousands of beers and coffees I've had, uh, up here, up here, I've only had one person that wasn't raised in a faith home. That is stunning to me, absolutely stunning to me, because so many of them walked away. What happened? Right? I've asked this question in the classroom, in bars, coffee shops, airplanes, airports. I've asked the question over and over again. When you think of God, do you think of him as somebody who really cares deeply about you and wants to bring you the deepest joy possible? Or do you think of the eye in the sky just waiting for you to trip up? Overwhelmingly, that's the answer. I mean, I'm talking 99% of all the times I've asked that question. Where did we go wrong as a church? Where did we go wrong? Because that is not the essence of the good news. That's the result of depravity and the fall. And so we need to talk about it. You see, in order to understand grace, you have to understand sin. If you don't really have a good handle on sin, grace is cheap. It means nothing. When when Nancy and I were in Germany working with military, uh, U.S. military, we had a house full of soldiers. Uh, Most of them were just kind of crude and, you know, um, every now and then we'd have a Christian come in. And it got to the point where I wanted to say to them, why don't you just go down to the ministry down the street? They had had all the answers and none of the enthusiasm. None of the excitement, none of the passion that the Bible talks about, none of it. And it got me thinking long and hard about the, the way we construct and create things. You see, if you're one of those here, and I know some of you here are from this background, I know that some of you come up in a background where you have been saved out of maybe a life of drugs or immorality, okay? That's partly my journey, okay? Some of you have heard it. You have a real sense of what you were rescued out of. I don't have to tell you. You know, because you knew what it was like to be buried in the pit and all of a sudden be given life. But you're raised in a Christian home. You don't have that. And that leads to apathy. And I saw it over and over and over and over and over and over 
and over again. I can't tell you in 40 years how many times I've seen it in apathy. Oh, you appreciate grace. We talk about it. But to you, it's more like Santa Claus. No, he delivers good things. But here's the problem. Do we want our kids to go become drug addicts so they can experience true grace? Of course not. So what's the answer? I've taken young people to uh, AIDS hospice centers to help clean people who are dying in a couple weeks. I've taken them to uh, soup kitchens. When they were in Germany, I took them to the main park, downtown Frankfurt, where they pass out needles um, so they can see for themselves. They can have a vicarious experience with sin so they can see the reality of if Christ wasn't here, that would be me. Then grace begins to grow. Your, your understanding and appreciation of grace is directly dependent on your understanding of sin. And the cheaper your view of sin is, the cheaper your view of grace. The weaker your view of sin, the weaker your view of grace. And so it's important that we stop from time to time. I did this about seven years ago. We stop as a church from time to time. Let's take a look at the destructiveness of sin. There is no way I can overstate that. And that comes from, we get this uh, technical term, comes out of Romans, we're going to see it in a little bit, called depravity. You know what depravity says? Every single molecule in your body, every single thought that you have, every single thing about you, 100%, is completely destroyed. Paul says in Romans 3 this way, there's no one who is righteous. Not even one. And just in case you miss it, then he goes on and said, there is no one who doesn't even, who even does good. Not even one. Don't think too highly of yourself. Paul goes on in Romans and says, don't think too highly. Don't do it. So when Jesus says you look after a woman and you lust, you've committed adultery, do you think that's a joke? You get angry with somebody, you just committed murder, you think that's a joke? When Paul says murderers and adulterers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, is he teasing? That's how serious this discussion is. There's no one who's righteous, not even one. No way we can overstate how destructive it is. So therefore, we need to understand, number one, why it is important to understand it. But even more important, why is it important to confess it? Why is that important? So what actually is sin? What is it? You're all familiar with the Christian doctrine of sin. Okay, separates us from God. We have all these fancy terms that we use, right? Uh, that's true, but it is such a, a, an all-encompassing concept. All-encompassing concept. Not one of you does anything good. Not one of you. It's Romans 3. That's Isaiah 55, Isaiah 58, several other verses. Not one of you. It may look good to you, but it's not. You see, the only person that matters in this discussion is God. It doesn't matter what you think. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter what you think. The one question every single one of you is going to have to answer comes at death. 
is there really a God and what does he expect? And that's when you're going to find out. And so we should all be students of this. This is his word. All the logic in the world isn't going to help you out. Our people out here in government from top to bottom, they have no clue about wisdom. They don't, which is why God tells us, pray. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our president. It doesn't matter if you like the president. Pray for the president. Okay? I can't stand our Dillon Town Council. We have two of them right here. I can't stand these guys. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) They're great. I love them both. (laughs) We often have a third one here. (laughs) I love them a lot. But they need our prayers. They need our prayers. They need our input. They need our involvement. The school board needs our prayers. They are not perfect. Not by any sense of the word. They need our prayers. They need our love. They need our care. They are not the enemy. Okay? Our president is not the enemy. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Who's our enemy? Satan. And our own selves. Okay? The moment you begin to think that, "Ah, I'm not a bad person, I'm okay, I'm pretty good, better than that person, you just became a Pharisee. That's what happened. So what actually is sin? Well, the gospel, by default, assumes that something is wrong. Otherwise, we'd have no need for the gospel. That's what sin is. And so the judgment aspect of sin, which is what we've managed to communicate nationwide, the judgment aspect, that was already dealt with on the cross. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. Okay? So the judgment aspect of sin has already been dealt with. That was taken care of. What that means is you are now reconcilable. That doesn't mean you're reconciled. Okay? So the judgment aspect. So then what is sin about? It's about this right here. The destructiveness that goes on in our lives and between us in relationships. I'm going to read to you Romans 1. Okay? It's very clear. Paul lays it out in Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Here's a key phrase, and this applies to every human, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The moment you decide to sin, that's what you do. You suppress what you know to be true. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people, every single human, is without excuse. This solves the problem of What about the pygmy in Africa that doesn't have a chance to hear? Every human has the same opportunity. There's no greater probability being in the U.S. versus India versus Africa. None. We all have the same data right here. And God reveals himself right here. Every human has the same chance. The question is, what do you do with it? The Bible's filled with language that God says, if you search for me, I'll make sure you find me. I'll make sure that that happens. 
And I've got countless, hundreds of stories from 23 years in third world countries of the craziest ways that people found Christ. It's crazy. But that's the reality of it. You may not like what the Bible says, but that's your issue. That's not God's issue. That's what I mean when he says you suppress the truth. That's what he's talking about. Sin, there's no way we can overstate how utterly, totally, completely destructive sin is. The problem is we don't know it because it's natural to us. To get people to move from a natural world to a spiritual world is so difficult. That explains why all the things that go on in the world. Imagine a world where um, there's no affliction, no earthquakes, none of that stuff. There's no hostility, none of those things, right? You would need God. The moment we decided to eat the wrong fruit, we call that the fall, all those things became a theological necessity. Can't tell you the times over the years, the decades, people have been hit with something really severe and they can't let go of their, their faith. They just can't. Okay? It makes it stronger. It's all the inequities that make us search for God. Is it what we're created for? No, of course not. But it's a necessity in a fallen world. Because if you never had conflict, then you wouldn't need God. That's the, that's the reason by why wealth in the Bible, it's talked about, you better be very careful if, you're, if you, God's going to make you wealthy. And God is the one who says, I decide who is poor, I decide who is wealthy. You better be very careful. Having been at a place in life where I open the refrigerator and there's nothing in the refrigerator but a jar of mayonnaise, and I open up the cupboard and it's completely empty, I'm walking to work because I can't afford gas, my faith was strong. I don't have that now. My car crashes, go buy another one. That's what wealth does to you. Wealth softens your spirit. It softens your faith. It weakens it. That's why Jesus could say, it's easier for a rich person to go through the eye of a needle than it is to get into the kingdom. And even Peter said, how on earth do you do it then? And he says, with God, all things are possible. So for those of you that are wealthy, I rejoice that you're here, but be very careful because you're on the verge of a very weak faith because of it. Why does God make you wealthy? To give it away. That's why. Paul Wardlaw, when he became chairman, we had 600,000 in the bank. By the time he left, we had like 1.2 million in the bank. And he said, Jim, you gotta figure out why. God's not trying to make us rich as a church. That's never his goal. It's never his goal to make someone rich. He makes them rich because we live in a destructive, sin-filled world and we are, he gives some of us resources to give it away to others. Let's assume everybody's equal right now. Let's assume everybody's equal financially. There's no social economic disparity at all. Then what? Don't need each other. The problem isn't disparity. The problem is greed. That's the problem. Greed. And what all of us should be doing is saying, God has given me this stuff. 
Who needs it? Who needs it? That's why the story of the scriptures is consistent from beginning to end. The people at the bottom of the rung are the happiest. Everywhere I go, I go, I, you know, I just got back from Cambodia. 75 untrained pastors, they don't even, half a million have a Bible. And you know what their happiest could be? You know why? Because they were rescued. They found eternal life. And they can't wait to tell the other people in the slums and in our neighborhoods. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor. You see, everything that we think of structurally that makes us feel good about ourselves, Jesus turned it on its head in the Beatitudes. Turned it upside down. We don't know how to think that way, and we have to learn how to think that way. And that's a really big challenge. God doesn't give you things to make you rich. There's nothing inside of you that deserves any of it. He gives you stuff so that you can bless people with it. A lot of times I've walked into rich people's homes. All this is God's. I always wonder what that means. Okay, so then I'm going to invite 20 homeless people to come and inhabit your house. Oh, no, I don't mean that. What actually do you mean? This is God. If it's God's, then use it the way he said use it. Go out in the byways and the highways and collect all the poor people. Fill your house with it. You see how challenging this is? To step into a theological world from God's perspective. Sin is completely, totally destructive. That's why we call it depravity. I'm going to go on and read you another part of Romans. In the same chapter, a little bit later on. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. You see, God is very gracious. He established what we call dignity. He gave it to you. He lets you choose. You want it? Go for it. Yours. I'll give you everything you need. Or I'll give you everything you want. And you're not going to like it. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Okay, pause. The verse before, which I did not read, is the verse on homosexuality, which is run up the flagpole as the key verse. This is how evil this sin is. It's actually not the worst sin. <laughs> Okay, because Romans is in a step-down process in Romans 1. And uh, every verse we read, we're stepping lower into the pit. That's just an example. Now, ask me if you find yourself in this list. They're full of envy. Do you ever envy? Murder. You ever hate somebody? You're a murderer. They're full of strife. Have you ever been in a situation where you cause strife? They're full of deceit. You ever told a white lie? If you understood how destructive sin is, you wouldn't do that. Full of malice. They're gossips. You ever gossip? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant. You ever been arrogant? Boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. You ever disobey your parents? You have kids that disobey you? Every human struggles with this. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. 
although they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve what? Death. They not only continue to do them, but they approve of those who practice them. And what they're doing is not a big deal. We've lost all sense of moral accountability. It's gone. In fact, what I'm saying now is hate speech in a good portion of our country's picture. It's considered hate speech. It may come a time in my lifetime where this is illegal, what I'm saying to you. I guess I'll go to jail for saying it. This is where we are. We got your attention, how destructive sin is. There's no way you can overstate it. When Paul says there's no one, not a single person who does good, no one is righteous. God is the one who said that in Isaiah. So it doesn't really matter what you think. What matters is what God thinks because he's the judge that you will face one day. So then, what's wrong with sin? It's no longer about judgment by God's grace that was dealt with on the cross. That's why Jesus could say, do not judge, do not condemn. It's not about judgment. You know what it's about? It's about this. It's about what we call shalom, the loss of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, but it's far bigger than peace. It means it's the reversal of everything in me toward what God created. To see what it means to start loving people. When you see a poor person, do you think, oh, or do you think, how's the government program? Or worse yet, oh, if they only got a job, it'd be okay. Is that what you think? Or do you find your heart becoming tender like God's? Oh, when you read 50,000 people die in Turkey, what's your first thought? Whew, glad I'm not there. Oh. Oh. See, that's what shalom is. Shalom is transforming you back into what you were meant to be. So the classic understanding of the world is the concept of the way things are supposed to be, what we are created for. We're not created to be dispassionate, uncaring. We're created to be very compassionate, and that's hard in a fallen world. Some days, I'll be honest with you, I hear things and I sit at my desk. There are days when I just sit there and weep a little bit. I say, God, I'm so sorry what we did with this wonderful gift. I'm so sorry that this has happened. I'm so sorry that this person has treated this person that way because that's not the way it's supposed to be. And sin makes you live in a world not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom is the way it's supposed to be. That's why you don't sin. It's not because of judgment. You get all the grace in the world when you sin. It overflows even if you don't understand it. But what you don't get is joy. That comes from the fruit of the Spirit, which is walking by the Spirit. So when you walk by the Spirit, you get that joy. And when you walk by the Spirit, you're doing what God has asked you to do all along.
you're beginning to move in a different direction. And that's when you begin to experience joy. Every, every sinner, every sinner gets grace. They don't understand how powerful it is. It's so powerful. It's what keeps you out of the pit. You know? It is. Sat with a guy in prison who said, I deserve what I got. No, you didn't. You deserve hell. When Jesus said there's not, when Paul said adulterers and murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God, that's every single one of you. That means that you have no chance. None. That's why the cross is so critical in Christian theology. There's not a thing you can do about it. You're born into it. Not a thing you can do. That's why the cross is so important, because God forgave you. But that's only part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we don't want to just experience forgiveness. We want far more than that. We're made for more than that. Love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. That comes from faithful living. The more you understand about the destructiveness of sin, the more you say, thank you, God, for the cross. And the more you say, help me today to walk by faith because I yearn to experience that love, that joy, that peace, that patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the gratitude, the thankfulness, the self-control. That comes from every day saying, help me today to walk by the Spirit. And so, I'm not going to put it up there, but in Galatians 5, the other fruit of the Spirit, I just read, quoted all that to you, but just before that, it gives you the lust of the flesh. And then in between the two, you know what it says? God has put this inside of you, the Spirit, so that you won't do what you want. Because your natural tendency is to get angry when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Am I right? The natural tendency is to lust when you look at an attractive woman or car or whatever it is, wherever that weakness is, that's your natural tendency. And he put the spirit there so that you won't do what you want. You're caught in this turmoil and that's God's saving grace. That's his grace. There's no way we can overstate how destructive sin is. And the more you know that, then the more you begin to realize there's no way you can overstate how incredible grace is. Father, thank you for your incredible grace. Lord, you didn't create the mess, we did. It's hard for us to believe that it's as bad as it is, but it really is not the way it's supposed to be. And it really is not the way you created us to be. So God, help us as a church to to work even harder every day to walk by your Spirit so that we experience the things you made us for. So as time goes by, we experience the world the way you made it to be through our own personal lives. And then help us, Lord, to have that deep, deep, tender mercy and compassion for the people all around us that are just trying to figure out life. They're just trying to figure out life. 
because we can make sense of it because of you. Help us to have that kind of compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.